I have to confess, I am not a, um, I'm not a country music fan. Never have been, never will be probably, although I can appreciate music on all levels. Maybe there's a, a moment of spiritual weakness where I may enjoy a country song here and there. But I do know of one that gained popularity and if for no other reason it's created many jokes and for those that are in the know of social media, many memes over the last couple years and that would be a very popular tune. I think the title was Jesus Take the Wheel. Um, Never heard it, I have to be honest, I've never heard it, never really had a desire to hear it. Um, Not because it's not a good song, but again, country music. But it was interesting, I think it's a very interesting concept when we talk about Jesus taking the wheel. I remember, and I know my friend Travis would remember very well, uh, a recent, well I say recent, it was about eight years ago, trip to Guatemala. He's already laughing, he knows where I'm going. We took a a group of teenagers down to Guatemala for about 10 days and it was a wonderful trip. Um, I finally learned how to drive a stick shift uh, which was interesting to say the least. We did never, never got into an accident, I believe. I don't think we ever got into an accident. Um, and um, Travis's phrase was, grind it till you find it, uh, which <laughs> popped up every once in a while. Um, but there was one point that, for the most part, I think I did okay for, the, for never learning to drive stick shift and learning to drive stick shift for about a week before we went out there. It's different driving uh, a a manual transmission in flat Kansas as opposed to mountainous Guatemala City. And so that was interesting. And at one point we arrived at a destination where we were going to do some work uh, and um, they said, go ahead and parallel park on the side of the road. I don't have a problem with parallel parking, but this hill was, what, maybe 30 degree incline at best. And, uh, and not only that, but it was on the left-hand side of the road, it was a one-way road that they wanted me to park. And um, I, I didn't, I don't think I even attempted to do it. I just put it in, uh, you know, put it in neutral, turned off the engine, hit the emergency brake, and just handed the keys to one of the locals that were with us that day, and I said, you do it. <laughs> I, I just, I wasn't even gonna try. Um, and it would have been really interesting if his name was Jesus, because then Jesus would literally have taken the wheel. Anyway, <laughs> it might have been. In one sense, it's true that there are times where we do want the Lord Jesus Christ to take the wheel. Something's going on in our life and we say, I can't do this anymore. And so we call out to God in a moment of terror or difficulty or stress and we say, please just do this for me. It would be comparable to a young child going up to his parents and saying, or her saying, I cannot do this anymore. I don't have the strength to do it. And it's quite literally a physical strength issue. And so the father or the mother comes along and says, I got you. I'll take care of that. And there are times like that. So in one sense, it's true. We'd love to have Jesus be in control. But here's the true, the dirty truth, so to speak. He doesn't want that kind of control. He does in one sense. Christ wants to be the one that we go to for guidance, for direction, certainly for salvation. But in another sense, at no point do we find a verse in the Bible where it says, let go and let God. 
It's not biblical. Jesus says, I'll tell you where to go, but it's gonna be up to you to actually make the choice to do that. It's gonna be your choice to actually go that way. In fact, in some ways, I think a better, uh, a better example would probably be looking at Christ as almost our GPS. The GPS tells you, hopefully correctly, where to go. Take a right here. Now, it's still your choice, isn't it? It's not a self-driving car yet. It's probably coming soon, which makes me even more nervous, but whatever. It's not a self-driving car. If the GPS says turn left, then it's up to you to turn left. You could just as easily turn right. But instead, you're looking for direction, you're given direction, this is what you should be doing. And instead of Jesus saying, oh here, let me drive for you, he says, no, you know how to drive, but I'm gonna tell you which way to go, but it's still your choice. So it's kind of this odd dichotomy that we have with God where God says, I'm gonna tell you what to do, I'm gonna tell you what would be most beneficial, this is what you should be doing, but it is still our choice in a very real way to do it. So while we may say, Jesus, take the wheel, Jesus says, no, I'm just gonna tell you what to do, you keep driving, but we got this. We got this together. We've gotta keep our hands on the wheel. He's given us a certain amount of control, but he expects to be the one to tell us where to go and what to do. So then the question that comes up in my mind is, what happens when we stop listening to the spiritual guidance in our lives? What happens when we say to the GPS, no, I'm smarter than you, I can do this? Because if you've ever used GPS on a trip, whether it's Siri or Google Maps, or remember the old school ones that maybe you still have that you sit on your, on your dashboard? I was gonna say windshield, don't put them on your windshield, that's dangerous. Um, but, but we use those, we've, we've decided, especially those of us who are more of the XY chromosome leaning gentlemen, there have been times where we have said, no, that's not right. That is not the right way to go. I have a better sense of direction than clearly this computerized individual. And maybe sometimes we've actually gotten it right. You know, it says turn left. I know you're not supposed to turn left right. You're gonna turn right. And we were right. Other times, we were desperately wrong. Sometimes it's there to follow, but what happens when we decide I don't need that anymore and we decide to try to do life on our own without that spiritual guidance, without that spiritual GPS and eventually we begin to ask yourself, well, who is really driving this thing? As we look at our lives, we've got to ask ourselves, well, yes, I am in control. I've got my hands on the wheel, but I, am I at all listening to the spiritual guidance and direction that's being given to me or am I just saying, I got this on my own, I can do this. I think it's a very dangerous concept. If you recall, and I wouldn't expect you to, but it feels nice of me to say that, if you recall the last time that I preached, we talked about where the nation of Israel was going with this whole choosing a king thing. So we reviewed a little bit in the verses that we mentioned or that were read this morning, but it's this idea where the, the, the nation of Israel was basically saying, we wanna do this on our own. We no longer want to have a spiritual GPS. You see, the issue that God had with the nation of Israel was not that they wanted a king. There was nothing wrong with having a king. 
They had just gotten through the period of the judges rule where you had Deborah and Gideon and and Ehud and Samson, who wasn't admittedly the greatest judge to have, but they all fit into that category and they were leading the people in kind of the same way that a king would lead a nation. It wasn't the fact that they wanted a king that God was upset about. It was the fact, as we read in verse five, where they said they want a king to judge us like all the other nations. We wanna be like everyone else. At which point Samuel should have said, well, if all the other nations were jumping off a bridge. (laughs) The sad part is Israel probably would have responded, that depends on the bridge. They were pretty much ready to do this no matter what. They were set on this idea. It wasn't the fact that they were going to have a king. It was the fact that they wanted to be like everyone else and they wanted a king to rule over them rather than God. That was the issue. It wasn't that they wanted someone, they just wanted to do away with God. They wanted to be like everyone else. They began a very slippery slope of removing God from the equation in their lives. That's the idea. It's, it's this rejection of God that, they get, that he gets very worried about. Israel began creating problems. They, rem- they started removing God from the final authority. God allows them to set this up, and we kind of left Samuel in a little bit of a tizzy, a rightfully spiritual tizzy. Samuel prayed to the Lord in verse six. He says, well, I, I don't understand. He, he prays to the Lord and he says, this isn't right. I, I, don't, I, don't, the, the, I know God that this isn't right. This isn't possibly what you want. And God says, no, obey the people in verse seven in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you. So don't make this personal. Instead, they're rejecting me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, verse nine, and show them the ways of the king who will rule over them. He says, look, go ahead and do that, but understand this, I want you to explain to them what this is going to be like. Again, The issue was not having a king. The issue was wanting to remove God from their lives. And simply put, removing God from the equation never works out. It never works out, and I think we see this in two primary ways. Number one, if you're following along your notes, removing God from the equation never works out, number one, because of all that he has done and is doing. We should never remove God from spiritual guidance in our lives because we can easily look back to what he has already done, what he is currently doing, and in fact, if we were to go one step further, because it's always, you always want to look at past, present, and future, you don't just want to look at two out of the three, it sounds disjointed, but even if we were to look farther ahead and we would say, well, we know that there are certain promises that God has yet to fulfill, but we know that he is going to fulfill those. When we look at what he has done, is doing, and will do, why on earth would we take him out of the equation of our lives? 
He says, look, I've taken them out of Egypt in verse seven and eight. This is what I've done. And how easily we forget important things. I, I, I don't even forget the important, I forget the important things. I forget the unimportant things. I forget all kinds of stuff. How many times have you ever had somebody say to you, hey, remember when you said or did that? And you're genuinely going, no. I don't remember that at all. Well, it was, it was really important. It was, it was really good that you said that. What? And we forget what has been done. Israel constantly had a problem with this. It's really interesting because what we know of the ancient cultures, they were very, very focused on verbal tradition, oral tradition, passing things on orally from one generation to the next and making sure that they would never forget. They would set up things like what was called an Ebenezer. They would set up an altar. They would set up some kind of a a monument that people would look back and say, that's to remind me of what God has done. This was constantly a part of the Israeli culture. They would set up all these things to remind themselves to do something, to think some way, to, to, to remind themselves of what had been done, the promises that are yet to be fulfilled, and yet they were constantly forgetting what they were doing. God let them out of Egypt after the 10 plagues. How could you forget that? How could you ignore that? At what point, as you walked around the wilderness as the nation of Israel did, did you think to yourself, you know, I just, I know what he did, but I mean, honestly, is that a big deal anymore? That's kind of in the past. I mean, do I, do I, am I really that impressed with what God offers, remembering the 10 plagues? I understand that he parted the Red Sea. That was a big deal. I mean, that was pretty cool, you know. No one was looking. I put my finger in the, in the wall. And I felt bad, so I had to try to cover it. No, there wasn't anybody that was doing that. Well, I would have. I'll admit it. If I was walking through the Red Sea, totally touching the water on the side, and my mom would have been like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't help it. I gotta do it. It's not like a, it's not like a, a, a dam or something that you poke it, and all of a sudden it starts spilling out, and it was like, hurry up, we gotta move faster. The kid poked a hole. I don't think it was like that. I think God took that into consideration as he did that. But it would have been interesting, right, to be, to be a part of that. And so you have this whole generation that sees these things like the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, and they forget what God has done. God gave them the 10 commandments. They were at Mount Sinai. In fact, that wasn't even really a long issue for them, was it? While God is giving Moses the 10 commandments and there is all kinds of fire and lightning and thunder at the top of Mount Sinai, what are the Israelites doing at that very moment? setting up a false god. Moses comes down, he goes, what's going on? And Aaron, the brilliant man that he is, I don't know, the people gave me their gold, I put it in a fire and this calf came out. (laughs) They had a problem with this. The fact that they got food from heaven. Literally, food was falling from the sky for them to eat, manna. And instead of going, holy cow, this is incredible. After a very short time, they're going, ah, it's just not my favorite. Now, maybe they had good reason to. Maybe it tasted something like the bread that are in the cups that we eat for communion. We know it's not good tasting bread, okay? It's not like one of those things you're like, this is something that the church is trying to do. No, it's just, it's, it's a COVID thing. You know we had 
better tasting real bread that wasn't formerly packing peanuts. We know that it was good. But maybe the manna tasted like that and they just decided, well, this doesn't taste really good. I personally don't think it was. Either way, the fact that they had bread falling from heaven and then they would wake up and there was just quail all over the place that they could kill for meat. The fact that Moses, although he was supposed to speak to the rock, struck the rock, water came out of a rock And they forget this. They forget all that the Lord is doing to lead the nation of Israel by fire, a pillar of fire or a cloud. How amazing must that have been? Walking around a heavily fortified city several times and the walls fall. I mean, there's no way on earth that, I, that any Israelite is going to do this and, and not at some point thinking to themselves, this is gonna be really awkward. They're gonna mock us, they're gonna make fun of us, people are gonna be talking about this for generations later. Like, they did what, where? But it worked. The walls came down. The judgment that they saw for disobedience before that, the several times. What Jay was talking about, about how there was these snakes that came in and they were biting everyone, or the doubters that decided that they weren't gonna believe, believe God's word. And so God says, oh, if you don't believe me, let's spend another four decades in the wilderness. They forgot. They forgot this stuff. And God says, it's so easy for people to forget the past. And that's what they've done. They've forgotten all the stuff that that I've done in the past for them. They simply don't remember anymore. And it's even easier to dismiss it. Well, that that was kind of a fluke thing. How many times have we done that as 21st century Christians? Something incredible happens, something that we may even consider to be almost miraculous. And instead of years later looking back at that and saying, man, this is such an incredible reminder of how God is in control, we kind of go, that was kind of a fluke thing. That was really awesome, but it doesn't always work like that. Why not? Well, I, I don't see it every day. Well, again, why not? Do we notice enough about the past? Do we remember enough about the past? Do we believe that the same God who parted the Red Sea, sent the 10 plagues, countless other miracles throughout history is the same God that we worship today? I am not condoning the idea of looking out for miracles. But what I am saying is we had better take notice of how God is working in our lives, in our past, in our present, and looking forward to our future. Otherwise, if we don't, we are gonna fall into the same temptation that the nation of Israel faced, and we're going to begin to remove God from the equation because we don't see really how he's fit in up until now. We gotta be careful of that. Because the moment we remove God from the equation, it starts to go south. It starts to go bad. People say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I'm telling you right now, throughout history, when people have removed God, I'm not making this political, I'm not gonna go there at all, but whenever on a personal level, on a government level, on a church level, Whenever God is slowly removed from the equation, we see things going bad. 
And it's because we forget that the same God who performed miracles and has done mighty things, has quite literally created the universe that we live in, is the same God that we worship today. We're in danger of removing him from the equation. We don't remove him from the equation because we need to constantly remember what he has done, is doing, and will one day do. But Samuel goes on. Samuel says, I really don't like this idea. God goes on. He says to Samuel, here's the deal. Don't take it personally because it's not you they're rejecting, it's me, so stop it. You almost get the sense that Samuel's having a little bit of a pity part here. Sammy, come on. It's not about you, dude. It's not about you. It's about me. I took care of it. They forgot. But here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. Not only do I want you to go ahead and give them a king, and this is a beautiful part of it. Next week, we're going to look at this idea, how they thought that they were the ones choosing everything. And God goes, you want a king? That's fine. But I'm going to give you what king I want. They were never in control, even though they felt like they were. But he says, not only that, go ahead and give them a king, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to remind them, very detailed reminding of what it's going to be like to have this king. It's not going to be pretty. They're not going to like it, but go ahead and tell them, because here's the deal. It's the same kind of concept that we see parents doing with their kids. It's the same reason we get things put into writing. Because once it's been said, and then we say to the child, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes. Do you understand if you eat that cookie that I just made, that your mom just made, there is going to be a consequence. Okay, you understand what I am saying to you. Yes, I understand. Okay, very good. So that when that child, if they happen to be anything like me, eats that cookie, we can say, we talked this out, you said you understood what was going on. You read that contract, or you were supposed to read that contract, even though it was 50 pages long just to use Facebook. But you said, okay, I agree, and you did all that. At this point, you have no leg to stand on because I very clearly communicated in a bunch of legal speak what was going to happen if you choose to do this. God's signing a verbal contract with the nation of Israel, so to speak. He's saying, look, I want you to tell them, just remind them that at some point, I would be very justified in a moment of, I told you so. I told you this is gonna happen. This is not gonna work out the way that you think it's going to work out. It's gonna be really lousy, and let me explain why. So what we have here is, the second reason that we don't want to remove God from the equation is because there is no one more generous, there is no more generous leader than God. There is no one more generous than God. We have this idea, and I, 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 I've always struggled with a passage where Jesus says, take on my yoke, it is easy. So you're like, well, you shouldn't have a problem with that passage. It's in the Bible. I have a problem with that passage because in my head I know it to be true, and in my heart I know it to be true. In practice, not so much. Because it doesn't always feel like it's the light yoke, does it? Some days the yoke that we carry as Christians feels really heavy. Like, I'm not sure I really want this yoke today. I think today I'm going to take off from Christianity. It's too difficult today. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Take my yoke because it's the easiest yoke you're gonna find. 
We go, but it's not easy being a Christian. Don't equate the two things. Don't equate God's yoke with simply being a Christian. He doesn't say, oh, following me is going to be easy. Notice how he doesn't say that. In fact, he said, it's gonna be difficult. He said in the same section of the Gospels, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna tear families apart. Well, that that doesn't sound very Christ-like. No, but when someone follows Christ and someone else doesn't, it's gonna tear a family apart. Some of you have experienced that, where you no longer have the same relationships with family or friends or coworkers or neighbors because you think differently about Jesus than they do. And it's created a rift. We go, well, wait a minute, your yoke was light. Why am I having these difficulties? Oh, my burden is light because I'm a generous God. But the way you live, it's gonna be difficult at times. See, we worship a generous God. God says, it's very simple. I'm gonna lay it all out for you. Live like me. You're gonna falter, you're not gonna be perfect. He understands it, but he says very simply, live like me. Obey what I want you to do. Develop a deeper relationship with me. There are gonna be certain things that you maybe need to get rid of. There are gonna be certain things that maybe you need to start doing. But he says in the long run, that's gonna be so beneficial for you. Instead, we compare that with what Samuel tells Israel. He says, verse 10 and on, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, all right, here's the deal. That's, that's the JKV, not the John Kelly version. These will be the ways of the king who will rule over you, reign over you. Very clearly, this is what's gonna happen. So I'm, I'm giving you one last out. You understand that this is, this is a really high interest rate loan here. Right, like you understand, we're, this, is, this is big. This is like, you know, when the, when the guy who needs money goes to that really, really sketchy guy for a loan, but he's a really nice guy, but he's just super sketchy, and he's kind of like, you understand that, that this isn't like a 5% loan. This is going to be like 20 or 30% loan, you know, and it's, and it's, it's going to keep going and going. I mean, this is, you, you understand what you're getting into here. Like, buyer beware. That's what he's saying. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He's going to take your sons. He's going to put them in the army. They will become warriors whether you like it or not. They will not be around and more than likely they will be killed in action because that's typically what happens in war. I didn't really think of that, but okay, that's, all right, well, that's okay. And he will appoint, verse 12, for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war in the equipment of his chariots. So he's gonna conscript a lot of these men. These sons are gonna be part of these huge groups of armies and these huge groups of soldiers, commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and then all of a sudden they're doing his work. You're gonna reap and sow and, and, and you're gonna plow his ground, reap his harvest. You're gonna make implements of war. You're gonna work for him. They're no longer gonna work for you. They're not gonna be able to help you around home because they're too busy helping the king around his and they're gonna to have to work on the equipment of his chariots. Now for some, like me, that would make me nervous. Chariots were ancient cars, not something I'm gifted in. 
I'm going to put your sons into battle. I'm going to put your sons into war. I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable. I'm going to make them do things they don't want to do. And they are no longer going to be part of your family because they're not going to be around to help you where you are. They're too busy helping the king. He doesn't stop then. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Not much better. I'm like, well, at least they're not going to war. Again, they're not yours. They're no longer your daughters. They're now his perfumers, his cooks, his bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He's gonna take all the good stuff that you have, all the good stuff that you like and say, oh, I'm gonna give that to someone else who didn't do anything for it, but it's gonna be theirs now. I'm gonna take from you, give to somebody else. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. Not only is he gonna take your fields, he's gonna take what you've worked really hard on harvesting, give a chunk of that away to people that don't deserve it, to people that never worked for it. He's gonna be giving hard work from one people and giving it to people who didn't do anything for it, and that seems like it's a negative concept. Might have gotten a little political there. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. So basically, anything that you find of value that helps you around the house besides your son and daughters, whatever's left, your servants, your donkeys, uh, he's gonna take them too. And then in verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you, you yourselves, you, you people that are listening to me right now, you will be his slaves. And in the day... In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Because he's going to be too busy saying, I told you so. He's going to look back and say, but you signed up for this. This is what you wanted. This is what you thought you would want. So I'm being very clear, this is how it's going to be. And to be honest, as we look back in history, with the very rare exceptions here and there. How do most kings rule? Still men. How do most queens rule? Still women. They're fallen. This stuff applies to just about any ruler of any nation over time. This isn't something that like stopped at Israel's king. He's saying, look, this is how it's gonna be. If you remove me from the equation, this is what's going to happen. It's not that you can't have a king, it's that you don't want the kind of king that I want you to have. Instead, you wanna be like everyone else and do what everyone else is doing. And so I'll give that to you, but understand this is going to look bad and be worse. He says, you want to remove me from the equation, that's fine, but you will never find a more generous leader of a nation than God. I will give you what you want. And if that wasn't quite clear yet to the Israelite nation, I don't know how God could have made it any clearer. I'm taking you out of Egypt. You're in slavery, I'm taking you out of slavery. I'm going to give you this promised land that's going to blow your wildest dreams out of the water. 
I mean, you know it was impressive because at when the point when the spies went into the promised land, they come out. You know what they, do you remember what they were bragging about? Grapes. They got huge, huge grapes. This is like incredible. I'm going, that, that's it? Like that's one of your takeaway points from the promised land? But it was the impression that we're given was that there was so much unbelievable beauty in this land. Everything was awesome. Everything was incredible. God says, that's what I give to you. I made a covenant with you. I made a covenant with Abraham and I'm fulfilling that covenant. I'm, I, I've made promises to you in the past that I will take care of you as a nation and I've taken care of you as a nation. He says, look back. Do you realize that the only times in your history that things went badly was when? When you removed me from the equation. So then it comes down to us as 21st century Americans. It's 21st century Christians. How have we removed God from the equation? And again, not getting political. I'm not talking about the nation of America. I'm talking about you individually and me individually. How have you removed God from the equation in your own life? Don't get sidetracked by saying, well, if, this, if, this, uh, if those people who will call on their, my name will humble themselves. I'm not talking about some huge overarching concept for a nation. I'm talking about you and I individually. How have we begun to remove God from the equation? Have we forgotten what he's done for us? It's not to say it's always easy, but we've, have we forgotten what he's done for us in the past? Have we forgotten the promises he makes for our future? Have we forgotten what a generous leader he is? No, life is not always going to be perfect, but clearly God says it's going to go better when we're on the same train moving in the same direction. It's going to go better when I'm giving you direction that you actually follow it. Even and, and almost especially at those times where we think to ourselves, but I know I should be going right. And God says, no, trust me, you want to be going left. I don't know, I just, man, right seems really good right now. God says, no, I want you to go left. Do we follow? Do we remember what he's done for us in the past? All those times he told us to go left, we went left and it worked out. Do we remember what kind of a generous leader is? Well, if I go right, I don't know what's gonna happen. God's going, do you honestly think that I'm gonna send you into destruction on purpose? So, well, it might feel like destruction. Even then, I've still got your back. It was a really funny episode of uh, a TV show where it had two gentlemen, and I'm sure everyone under 30 is gonna figure out what I'm talking about. Two gentlemen were listening very closely to the GPS of the vehicle that they were driving in to the point where they literally drove into a pond because GPS told them, keep going straight. I think you're gonna go into that pond. It's telling me to go that way. So they went that way, right? Michael and Dwight. I wonder if we're like that. If God said, I want you to go, how, how, the Israelites must have felt that way. I want you to go across that water. Whoa, wait, what? It says, yeah, don't worry about it, I got you. And if you remember very carefully, when did the water part at the Jordan? At the Jordan River, when they were finally entering the Promised Land? Do you remember when it parted? It wasn't when Moses stuck down his staff. It wasn't when Moses parted the sea, parted the river. Do you remember what it was? It was when the Levite priest took the first step in the water. 
It was when they decided, I'm gonna go left, even though everything's telling me I should go that way. I'm gonna go into the water. God is the best GPS possible. And we forget that. We forget what he's done. We forget how generous of a God he really is. If you're here today and you don't know about God's generosity, and maybe some of what was said and done this morning to you is kind of foreign, this whole thing with the bread and the the cup, and what are you doing about that, and this whole idea of the generosity of God, I I don't know about that, because I've had too many times in my life where God has seemed really not generous. In fact, I keep asking that question, if God is so good, then why are bad things happening? Simple answer is we live in a fallen world, and yes, God is in control, but we still have to control ourselves. Not everyone wants to control themselves in a godly manner, so that's why we have a fallen world. But if that's you this morning, I would encourage you, look back in your life. Some of you go, I, I, don't, I don't know of a time in my life where I ever really felt the hand of God. To be blunt, you're breathing, aren't you? That's the hand of God. The fact that you're hearing about this this morning and you're able to hear about this, whether physically or online, and you're listening to this is an acknowledgement that God is a generous God because you never had to have that opportunity. He wants you. He wants you as a son. He wants you as a daughter. He is a generous God. Follow him. It's not always going to be easy, but in the end, it's going to be worth it to always have God in the equation.